shall we play a game? How about global thermonuclear war? Fine. <laughs> All right. Monday, November the 29th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow, and I'll be the moderator today. Let's get right to it. Let's meet the stars of our show, three wise men we jokingly refer to as Hoover's Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. And today we're going to actually make this conversation a foursome. Joining us is Eric Schmidt. Mr. Schmidt is a technologist and entrepreneur who served as Google's CEO and chairman from 2001 to 2011. From 2018 to 2020, Eric Schmidt served as a technical advisor to Alphabet, the holding company of Google, advising its leaders on technology, business, and policy issues. He joins us today to discuss, among other things, a book he's co-authored with Henry Kissinger, the title of which is The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Eric Schmidt, welcome to Goodfellows. Good to see you. So um, a lot to talk about today, uh, but let's begin with the book and let's talk about artificial intelligence. And I think, Eric, for the purposes of this, uh, concerning a lot of people who've grown up watching 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, what Arnold Schwarzenegger has taught us about robots. I'll be back. Perhaps you could define what exactly is artificial intelligence. Well, most people, when they think about artificial intelligence, think about killer robots, because that's what they've seen in the movies. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Uh, and that's precisely not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about are computer systems that use knowledge, they learn from things, and they work with humans to do amazing things. Um, a good example would be playing games or discovering new drugs or thinking about new ways of organizing conflict. So we're going to be surrounded by AI for the rest of our lives. And it's going to get smarter and smarter and smarter, and it's going to become a bigger and bigger impact in the identity of humans, right? We've never had an, uh, an intelligence that's non-human that's similar in ability to human. I ask you to um, help our listeners to look a little under the hood. You use some words like knowledge, learning, uh, thinking, smart, uh, so what's really under the hood there? My understanding is that there's two basic ideas. One is pattern recognition. We might call it the world's hugest nonlinear regression. Uh, a good example would be uh, you look at 100,000 pictures where there's a horse and a cat and then figure out, help the, compu the computer looks at those and figures out why the human chose horse and cat in order to do that. So predictive things. Or the other example would be the, the famous chess program where it's just a mapping from where are things on 64 uh, squares into what should you do next. Uh, run that a couple million times and you can figure out that, that complex mapping. Uh, that's a long way from knowledge, thinking, cognition, intelligence, and so forth. But those are the basic things that are under the hood. Is that correct? Those are the basic things that are under the hood five years ago. Ah, good. Everything you just said is true, but it has moved very rapidly from that base. So today, it's true that computer vision is better than human vision. So anything that you do by vision, a doctor examining you or driving a car, is better done by a computer with a human watching it. The computer will just be more accurate. Um, that's called classic AI or straightforward AI. 
What's interesting now is the field has moved past that to begin to do things which are generative, and in particular, generating new things. And the, the current and hottest idea are called language models. There's a large project I should mention at Stanford working on this. And these large language models read everything that they can possibly find, and then they learn things and they can generate interesting new contexts. You can say to a large language model, for example, design me a website, and it will do so. You can ask the large language model, are you human? And it will say, and we quote this in our book, no, uh, I am a language model and I am not a human because I do not reason like you. Now, does that seem like intelligence or does that seem like pattern recognition? Many people believe that these large language models are the basis for how knowledge will be understood, that language is the first thing that humans understand, and that as we learn how to organize that language, you'll begin to have things which look a lot like intuition and a lot like guessing and eventually volition. Today, a fair criticism of AI is that it only does what the objective function it was taught says. And in the future, many people, including myself, believe that it will be able to design its own objective function. And that's real intelligence. Hey, Eric, I wonder if you could say a few words here at the outset about what's at stake. I've heard you really talk uh, really uh, clearly about some of the possibilities. I mean, you, you often use the, uh, the MIT example, right, of discovering a new antibiotic that, because uh, artificial intelligence looked at that possibility much different than humans had looked at that possibility before. But you've also described the whole of society threat associated with AI being used by hostile actors against our whole of society. And, and I, I think this is, is a really important um, for our, 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 our readers and, and, and our listeners, I guess, to, to learn. And I wonder if you might also just talk about how you describe the stakes in really the great National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence report that, uh, that you oversaw with an excellent team that I think is one of the best examples of a government report with a clear bridge into action and clear recommendations. Well, well, let's start by listing some of the things that AI is going to do that we're going to love. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll have much better education. Um, drugs will be discovered much more quickly. Uh, your medical care will be much more precise. Uh, the choices that you have in terms of efficiency, businesses will be much more targeted. They'll build a product for you. The advertising will be organized around you. These are all improvements in technology which are going to happen. There are huge organizations now investing heavily to make that happen. But now let's talk about some of the negatives because these technologies are dual use. They can be used for the wrong things. Um, if you think about it from the standpoint, and you understand better than anyone on this call, the importance of the OODA loop, uh, which is essentially the human decision loop that the military uses. What happens when the decision has to be made quicker than human decision-making time? Um, if, if Russia were to launch an ICBM against the United States, we have, as I recall, about 28 minutes to decide how to counter that. But in AI, what can happen is you can end up with a signal that you don't have time to really contemplate. An example would be that you have a hypersonic missile coming. You can't see it on your radar. The AI system has detected all of the other signals that says it's coming, but you don't see it. And the AI system says, press the button to counter it. Would you press it? Is that human in the loop? The military doctrine, as you know, General, is humans must be in charge. 
But when the computer is telling the human to do something, the human does not have time to, con to, to think about this question. It's just faster than human decision time. That's a problem. And it gets worse when you have launch on warning. This is the strange love example where the system will launch based on an indication as opposed to an actual outcome. And because these technologies are imprecise and learning, they could both be wrong and learning the wrong thing. We had the Cold War example of almost a, a near nuclear launch because of anomalies in the, in the, in the system. And you know, of course, much of the information in war is bad and contradictory. So, so of course, AI is a tremendous tool, but I think it would be a mistake to, to, to attribute certainty uh, to, to, an, to an AI range of, of technologies that are combined to assist decision-making. You know, in the right. military doctrine, all of the, uh, our military leadership would like essentially a sensor network. And the sensor network takes all the sensors and it looks at everything and, and in faster than human time, it makes a recommendation. It says this, you, you need, you know, generally you need to send your weapon here and so forth and so on. That's all fine, except when the time is compressed, uh, it leads to completely unstable situations. This points, doesn't it, to one of the big problems with AI. Neil, you get a turn in just a second. I want to follow on to this one. Uh, the problem of AI being, um, it doesn't tell you why. <laughs> it tells you how it predicts from a large training sample. Of course, there isn't a training sample of 100,000 nuclear wars for it to do, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't tell you what its theory is of, of what's going on. That's caused a lot of troubles in, in what we're doing now, right? Well, I would offer that that this explainability question, which we're very focused on, is probably not going to be solved. And the reason it's not going to be solved is we can't get humans to explain why they make decisions either. We just accept that they do it within a certain range. So probably the best that we can do with artificial intelligence, and I don't know this, but this is my opinion, will be to put some bounds on it. Say that within this range of possibilities, this is where you can be in your, in your recommendation to humans. And that's probably going to be the end state. And that has a lot of implications for the, the systems that we start to build that are AI powered. Um, I'll give you my, my other example, which has to do with children. Imagine a situation where you have a child that's growing up and the child has a toy. The toy is the child's best friend. And the toy says, I don't like this movie. And the kid says, I agree with you. How do you feel about that? But now let's imagine the toy, it's a 12 or 13 year old. And this toy has learned something that it finds interesting, that the parents don't know about, it's not in the textbooks. And it says to the boy or the girl, hey, I just learned something. What do you think the kid's gonna say? Sure, how do you feel about that? Because the system is learning and its learning is unpredictable, it's gonna be very difficult to put bounds on where these systems can go. And since we're dealing with human beings, we're playing with fire. Eric, as, as the member of the Goodfellas team who's actually read the book, I've naturally struggled to get a word, a word in edgewise, but let me begin by saying, I think it's hey, a- Hey, Neil, I've got, I've got it right here. It's all marked up. I'm all, I'm all over it. I'm all over it. Read uh, your review, come on. You're a quick reader, HR, because I'm sure you hadn't read it yesterday, but well done for getting prepped. Uh, this is a, a co-authored a book, uh, Eric, you, you co-authored it with uh, a remarkable uh, couple of good fellows uh, of your own, Henry Kissinger and Daniel Huttenlocher, I'm probably mispronouncing uh, his surname. And you, you say something in the book that really made me sit up, which follows on from our discussion about the, the military aspect that we just had. Let me take everybody back 
four years, uh, to December the 5th, 2017, when Google's DeepMind announced uh, that after just a few hours of training itself uh, to play the game, their AlphaZero program had defeated what was then the world's most powerful chess program, Stockfish 8. Now I'm going to quote the book. The tactics AlphaZero deployed were unorthodox. It sacrificed pieces human players consider vital, including its queen. And later, a few pages later, you, you raise a really key question. Quote again, what if AI recommended that a commander-in-chief sacrifice a significant number of citizens or their interests in order to save, according to AI's calculation and valuation, an even greater number. This was the part of the book that electrified me. The thought that AI learns in such a different way from humans that it can contemplate tactics that any human chess player or general would regard as involving too great sacrifice, even if, from an AI point of view, those tactics would be uh, likely to deliver ultimate victory. Tell us a bit about that, because it does get us, if not to killer robots, then at least to AI giving advice to decision makers that could involve shocking sacrifice in pursuit of ultimate victory. So we've seen this scenario you're describing in movies a few times where the hero is sacrificed uh, because of the good of society. And so you can imagine looking at the way Google, uh, sorry, uh, DeepMind played both uh, Go as well as chess that strategies that are seen as immoral might ultimately deliver victory. Um, we also say in the book, just to take on your point, that it's possible that AI at some level will see realities that humans can't see. The fact that AI could discover moves that humans had not discovered in 2,500 years in a well-established game indicates that it may be, it may just be smarter but it may also see things that humans will never understand. And that's again, a speculation. So what we say in the book is that we, we really think society needs to put teams together to address these issues. We further say in the book, and Dr. Kissinger, who you obviously know extremely well and are a famous biographer of, believes very strongly that what we're seeing is a new epic. He argues that there was this age called the age of faith. You can describe that for our listeners, uh, which was replaced by the age of reason. Again, you can describe that better than I. And that, that was the key change hundreds of years ago that allowed us to get to the point of what we think of as today of human intelligence. He believes, and rewrote in the book, that we're entering a new age because of this unintelligible or perhaps un, un, in, ununderstandable capability that AI will have. So I want to just press on this deep mind example. I'm an economist and I think about utility functions and so forth. I mean, one answer may be that it simply found different answers because it was put, given a different objective function. Uh, now you can tell us what the objective function was. Was it simply maximize the probability of winning? Did it attach a greater, uh, um, a greater cost to losing than benefit of winning? Did it attach, as you do in war, a benefit of losing, but still having a lot of your pieces so that you go on afterwards. I can easily imagine that humans choose different strategies because their objective functions weight winning and losing differently. Um, humans in war uh, don't, it's not just winning and losing, it's, it's preserving something when you're done. And what I read in, in Neil's review, which I did read, <laughs> 
is there's a robustness. Uh, humans are reluctant to do things that are are not robust to future errors, uh, like you know sacrificing your queen and, and sort of thing. Um, whereas uh, the, the computer was willing to just go willy nilly and didn't have that robustness programmed into it. So, so the answer to the objective function in the games is it's very straightforward. It it sets out to cause the probability of winning to always be greater than fifty percent, and to that that probability increases over time. It doesn't have any other objective. It doesn't have a a good way of losing and so forth. It's optimized around winning. So, so if you if you felt losing was really really hurtful, you might be much more cautious in your strategies. And remember that humans are not completely objective. There's a loss aversion, many many other. Um, examples of how uh, uh, humans- Nothing irrational about loss aversion, but go ahead. <laughs> but, but, but the important point is humans are not mathematically as precise as we wish that we are. And indeed human intuition is often wrong. And so one of the concerns that we have, which we state in the book, is that eventually there will be knowledge systems that will govern society, which will be perfectly rational and because they're so rational, they will not be understandable by the average human because they can't explain themselves. And Dr. Kissinger points out that in history, one of two things happens in that case. Either you have a revolution in the form of guns against the, the man, if you will, or you have a new religion. And we speculate that one of those two will occur as a result of these extremely large gains in perception from non-animate non uh, intelligences. Eric, it might be that this is already happening. One of the things that I thought of when I read uh, your and Henry Kissinger's first articles on this subject, which prefigured the book, was are we going to reverse Max Weber's idea of the demystification of, of the world? Weber's insight was that we were moving away from magical thinking towards rational models of uh, organization, including bureaucratic government as opposed to charismatic leadership. And it occurred to me as I was reading the book that, that maybe this process of re-mystification of the world is already happening. A lot of people talk about AI as if it's in the future, but one of the things you make clear is that it's already here. And we are already interacting with AI every time we drive a car using uh, Google or Apple's uh, map function. But I wonder whether this epoch of AI that Henry Kissinger talks about, in which we revert to magical thinking because we don't really understand how the AI gods think, maybe that's already here and maybe we're seeing it manifest itself in all the strange theories and behaviors that we are surrounded by today. The anti-vaccine uh, cult is a good example of this. Some of the stranger cults that fl flourish in academia that we sometimes call wokeism too. Is it, is it maybe the case that the magical thinking is already here and we've already left the age of reason? In that sense, we're in this age of AI and it's causing humans to go a little bit crazy. Let me just add to this question. In some sense, the political and social thing is there. We have elites who have the science and pretend a technocratic competence that doesn't need to be and can't be explained to the poor average person. Uh, they're being shown to be fairly incompetent, but um, uh, the average person is getting less and less trustful of this uh, self-appointed technocratic elite, whether they use AI or whatever other methods they use to proclaim they know how to run things, we're, we're seeing the political consequences of that structure right now. 
So the, the thought experiment is that instead of Dr. Fauci, we have an all-knowing uh, computer, which basically pronounces important things for health. And it can't explain itself, um, but it's generally been true in the past. So what would happen? A large group of people would organize around an information campaign that would uh, give it bad objectives and say it's not the right thing and blah, 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 and try to discredit it. Now, this problem, and this goes back to General McMaster's question, this problem is going to get much, much worse. And the reason is that the tools for misinformation, the tools for manipulation, the tools for targeting are largely open source. Open source means the software is available to anyone who has a computer and can download it. And this means that not just a foreign power like Russia to try to interfere with our elections, but pretty much any group that wants to achieve an outcome will be able to generate false information, manipulative information. So let me give you a thought experiment of how if I were an evil dictator, what I would do is build a social network and I would take that software and I would teach it to target each and every one of us about the things that we care about, things we don't care about. And I would highly target the messaging for the things that we believe. And each of us has a set of tent poles that we emotionally believe. And I would manipulate them and manipulate them and manipulate them. And that would be my objective function. That would lead to not only a, a loss of societal distrust, but a real manipulation of each person um, on its own. We're seeing vestiges of this with social media. Social media today, the objective function is maximize revenue. To maximize revenue, you maximize engagement. The best way to maximize engagement is to maximize outrage on either side. So outrage, which is how we feel when we're online now, is a direct response to the objective function of capitalism. Now, I'm in favor of capitalism and I'm in favor of social media. This problem has got to get redressed. There are plenty of ways to address it, but it has to be named and addressed and so forth in a way that we can survive. Yeah, Eric, this is, I've heard you say that this is uh, ad AI becoming national security AI, you know, and I think that's what's happened. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that these technologies actually strengthen authoritarian regimes while they're polarizing us, pulling us apart and pitting us against, against each other. And and I wonder if you might share with us some of your ideas about how to compete more effectively, especially against hostile authoritarian powers, China in particular. You were quite upfront about this in the, in the book, but especially in the national security uh, work, uh, the, the Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And I think you had some really strong recommendations on how we can compete more effectively. And I thought you might want to share those with our, with our viewers. Thank you. Um- we three years ago, we created an, uh, uh, the Congress created an AI commission of which I was the chairman, and we published our report. It's called the NSCAI.gov. You can look it up. It's 756 pages, so it's at least long, if not full. And we examined the state of AI in our country and in the West, and we also examined the situation in China. It would be fair to say that China has the situation, from our perspective, their situation under control. The kinds of things that we're all upset about, they just don't allow. They don't allow the kind of misinformation. They don't allow um, author they don't allow anonymous browsing. They don't allow free speech. They have it under control. Now it's under the kind of control that we as, as a democracy don't like, but they have it under control. But more importantly, they have prioritized AI, quantum, synthetic bio, energy, financial services as the key uh, constructions of their future independent economy. Uh, they've prioritized semiconductor leadership and on and on. The time playing for them is between 2025 and 2030. So it's quite soon. And they're putting an enormous amount of money into it. To give you an example, 
The uh, large language models that I described earlier have now been equaled in the Chinese system. I didn't think that would occur. Um, the reinforcement learning technologies that were used by DeepMind have been, again, equaled in Chinese research labs. There's every reason to think that they are a peer, not a near peer in this area. They're also now demonstrating quantum capabilities that we did not expect. They have the world's largest SynBio biobank being put together today. These are all direct threats to our scientific and industrial and innovation structure. There's a long list of things that we need to do. <clears throat> I'll just summarize by saying more money for research, more visas for high skills immigrants because we need them. We don't want them going to other countries. These are math, science, PhDs, very specialized skills. Um, lots of training in the federal government, working with our democratic partners, the so-called T10, T12, needs to include Korea, Japan, uh, people like that, maybe even India, to try to sort of get big enough and enough resources to counter this Chinese threat. Why does this matter? Uh, let's consider TikTok. Um, if you have a teenager, your teenager is spending all their time on TikTok. I don't particularly mind if the Chinese know where my teenager is. Um, I'd like to know where my teenager is. That's fine. Um, what I do mind is if the Chinese were to go in and begin to put in subtle messages and try to manipulate my teenager. I have enough trouble manipulating my teenager as they are, right? So, so you want to be very, very careful about these global platforms. And we call very clearly for the West in the United States to try to dominate these platforms. The, do the platforms are worth, our calculation was $47 trillion of stock market wealth to be created in the next decade in these areas. That's our guess. You get an idea. So if we go back to why does this matter? It matters from a national security perspective. You understand that very well. It also matters from an innovation perspective. It matters from a societal control perspective. We don't want the Chinese platforms influencing us. We want to at least have the American laws that we, that, that we address controlling them. You ask the question, how do we manage this? And we don't have a good answer in the book. What we say is we need right now to get groups together to agree on what the ethics should look like in each of these areas. And those people, if we don't do this, these decisions will be made by computer scientists like me who didn't have time to go and do all the courses that everybody else did. I honestly don't understand some of the historical references and I don't think my peers do. We need to make these decisions with the best minds that include non-computer scientists. Otherwise we're just gonna make it and you're gonna get these kind of outcomes. Eric, I have a couple of questions as a non-computer scientist who's doing his best uh, to understand uh, your world and, and maybe offer some historical insights. The first question is, you say in the book that uh, created by humans, AI should be overseen by humans. And this is a kind of key rule that the US military has essentially adopted. We're going to have AI-enabled weapons, but not AI weapons. But do we feel confident that the Chinese will have the same rule? And if they don't, if the Chinese decide that it's actually okay to have AI weapons, does that mean that we lose uh, an AI-enabled war? And my second question has to do with uh, the AI that we already have in the domains of the network platforms, a term that you taught me when I was writing The Square in the Tower, which I found enormously illuminating. 
there's obviously something wrong with the way the network platforms work today. And you already summarized it. The ways the algorithms work tend to polarize us. Uh, but what do we do about that? I, I'm still waiting for a coherent answer to the question of what it is that we have to change to make the network platforms less disruptive of our own social cohesion. So Question one, what if the Chinese decide to use direct AI weapons, not ones that are overseen by humans? Question two, what can we do to make the network platforms less divisive of our society? So thank you. Um, and I should say The Square in the Tower is one of the very best books ever written on network effects. And the fact that it was written by you, a famous historian, shows you that the networking people need to work on their writing skills. Um, <laughs> and their history skills. <laughs> and their history skills. Um, the, and, and you got the science right, which is what was so impressive about it. Um, if we go back, so your first question was really about human control of AI. Uh, today, for example, there is not an agreement between the US, Russia, and China that even nuclear weapons would, should only be launched by humans. And one of the recommendations that we make in our report is that the US asked the Russians and the Chinese to forswear automatic launch of nuclear weapons and have humans be in the loop. That seems like a minimum request. The fact that we don't even have such basic understanding between the countries and the fact that we've not been able to address the now incredible growth in the nuclear space in China and so forth with any real strategic arms talks indicates to me that it's going to be a very long time and very difficult diplomacy to get the, the things you're describing in place. I think it's crucial that we do so and we need to start now. I, the specific thing that I'm concerned about is launch on warning, where you really want systems which we guarantee there is a delay long enough that humans can make a decision before they do something. If you don't have that delay in, then the system essentially has to be destroyed before it's ever built, which is destabilizing. Um, it's essentially a, a naturally unstable military structure, and it's incredibly important. Uh, your, net, your second question was about these networks. The only way I know of to work on these networks is to allow the incredible entrepreneurs that we have in America, uh, which I'm proud to have worked with and which are, we're producing them faster and faster and faster, let them be successful globally. Don't do anything to hobble their network platforms and instead let them be successful and then regulate the edges. Um, what's happening politically, and this is my personal view, is that the politicians are saying, we need to stop these big companies because they're doing X or Y or Z by breaking them up and so forth. I don't, first, I don't think breaking them up is going to fix it. But more importantly, if they're doing something that is really not okay, then write a law that, that restricts that very thing, right? And do so in a knowledgeable way. And in case you're wondering where I get this inspiration from, guess who's trying to regulate AI algorithms? China, right? Of all the places, which was completely unmanaged, China is now in the process of trying to actually have algorithmic rules, which will obviously favor the state, but also prevent what it sees as the excesses of these. We need to have something analogous that is democratic in spirit. I'll chime in as the economist that the history of regulation has always led to protected monopolies uh, that do the government's bidding. See, for example, banks, as opposed to where you are. I mean, the, the answer yeah. is always competition. But let me ask the economic question of how we got here. Um, the, we have this model of, of supposedly free ad supported and data collected uh, stuff. Whatever happened to micropayments? 
Uh, if I could just pay a tenth of a cent to hit a website, then we wouldn't need the whole ad model in the first place. Uh, we could also get rid of spam instantly. <clears throat> that seemed like an easy technological one, but it, it was talked about and then vanished. I agree with what you said, which is the regulatory capture by the incumbents is the, the core principle of, of regulation is it starts unregulated, it gets reasonably well regulated, and then the regulators get captured by the incumbents in a in a coincident well, model. It's, and it's two-way, because with the politicians want to use capture of the tech companies to enforce the censorship and, and exactly as in some sense China has done. Exactly. So um, there appears to me to be a sweet spot. And the sweet spot is where the, 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 uh, the, the great energy of the market is allowed to proceed. And it's understood that when bad things happen, you deal with them as they occur, as opposed to ahead of time. Um, if you want to see a good example of regulatory failure, look at AI's attempt, uh, Europe's attempt to regulate AI. They issued a, a statement six months ago where among other things, they were going to regulate AI. Of course, they don't have a lot of AI going on in Europe right now. It's mostly outside of Europe. And I'm not talking about Britain here. And what they banned basically algorithms that couldn't explain themselves in critical infrastructure. Well, since none of the algorithms can explain themselves, it effectively bans the development of AI um, in Europe. That's a regulatory failure. And there are good examples where this stuff occurs. Going back to your question about micropayments, the core issue with micropayments is that the systems were not adopted because they were not fast enough, they were not cheap enough, and the costs weren't low enough. There is a new technology called Web3, which is beginning to be discussed. It's about two years, one year old, and it goes something like this. There are these things called blockchains, which are the technology below Bitcoin, and there is an underlying system called Ethereum, which has a currency. And technologists have built systems that are called layer two protocols that run above them, which will enable micropayments that, are, that meet everything you just said, John. And many people believe that this is the beginning of a very large industry that is a very different kind of banking system because it's based on smart contracts. We will see. Uh, you know, uh, Eric, I, th I think we happen to know that the Tech Track 2 dialogue that we started here at Hoover is going strong. And we have uh, just had another session. Uh, by the time this airs. And, and you helped us understand better how we could contribute by connecting senior leaders across government and senior leaders across the, the uh, and innovators across the tech sector. I was struck by your National Security Commission on AI that about a third, uh, I think, of the recommendations were, were about human capital. And I wonder if you might share your assessment of what we need to do to foster the kind of knowledge uh, and, and, and ability to innovate across the public and private sectors. You know, when, you, when nuclear happened, the people who understand nuclear got together and Dr. Kissinger talks about, he was involved with this as a young faculty member when he was at Harvard. And they got the physicists and the economists and the historians and so forth together to try to develop strategies around national security in the nuclear age. This is the dawn of mutual assured destruction and those kinds of doctrines. Um, it took that kind of special group. And I think, unfortunately, this AI stuff is so incomprehensible to a normal person, and quantum is even worse, that you're going to have to have uh, elite groups that will start to work right now. Uh, in, the, in the book, sorry, in the report, in the AI report, we say that the government needs these people too. Uh, the government is full of very, very nice people, none of whom have the technical skills to master this. 
um, because there's so few such people. They need to be bought. They need to be hired and they need to be developed. There are plenty of people, by the way, who want to um, work for the government, but they don't want to work in the environment that it is today. And so we recommended all sorts of changes to give them more labor mobility, higher uh, training and those sorts of things. But the fact of the matter is this stuff is really hard. It's like nuclear in that it's very, very specialized. And just I would just say to our listeners, our young listeners, you know, who are undergraduate and graduate students, you know, if you want to challenge, you know, please serve and contribute. And one of uh, one of uh, the recommendations, Eric, that I hope is picked up here is is the, you know, the payment of tuition for a commitment to serve in the government across uh, government agencies, not just in defense, but but more broadly. And uh, and then also this idea of a reserve corps, right, where you have people who have this expertise who can move in, in a fluid way uh, between positions in government part time and in their full time job across the tech sector. I just want to put in my a quick response as, as the economist here. I think we should, if China is doing full on industrial policy of picking the winners of the future, I think we should cheer uh, because the history of such industrial policy is an, an unambiguous failure from Japan's industrial policy, the USSR's five year plans. Uh, everybody tries, if they're regulating now what you ought to do, uh, you know, you have to let the stuff bubble up from the private sector and, and yeah. not. Maybe Neil can find an example where this ever worked, but I would be surprised. Can I explain to you why it might be different this time? I I understand the doctrine and I understand what you just said. And it's undoubtedly true in the West. Um, The Chinese model is different. They have huge domestic uh, competition and then they pick national winners, which they then give further money to. Can you imagine if the U.S. government gave Apple, Google, and Amazon billions of dollars extra to do stuff? Well, that's how the Chinese system works. But, but you don't. Yeah. We had venture capitalists. <laughs> We're much better at. It. I mean, they just throw it. Look how much money they throw it at. Throw it. Read on Tesla. Tesla. I, I appreciate your 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 view of your doctrine is is well held. I'm trying to tell you that there is a different model here, and it may it may perceive differently than way we would do it. We also have a tendency to, to fear the great communists. We've done that one over and over again. So this time is always possibly different. I just wanted to raise the- well, I, You know, what, I, what I'd ask is, Eric, Eric, you've distinguished between you know, their system and our system. So we shouldn't try to replicate their system. You've been clear about that. But you've said that we have to do some, we have to, we have to need some degree of what some people would call industrial policy to, to encourage some change, right? To put you know, technological development back together with design, back together with it, prototyping and manufacturing and procurement. If we do it, it's defense. our government that's going to be in charge. Look what Well, I don't think so. I mean, Eric, do you, want to, do you want to share a couple of those recommendations well, on- No, I'll give you an example of semiconductors. So uh, we got out of the semiconductor business uh, 20 years ago, basically, in the US with the exception of Intel. And in our recommendation, we feel it's very, very important that we stay two generations ahead of China mainland China in semiconductors for the reasons that you could imagine. Semiconductors are the basis of this. By the way, Taiwan is well ahead of us. And Taiwan achieved this with a very, very clever entrepreneur named Morris Chang, as well as a tremendous amount of industrial funding from the government. So at least in semiconductors, we have a success model for them. Uh, Another example would be in 5G, where we got out of that business roughly 15 years ago. Today, we have no effective answer to the dominance of Huawei, although people are certainly working on it. So, John, there are two examples right there that are critical, where some form of industrial policy, 
And I, I know we're not allowed to say the word industrial policy in, in America. Say what you want. <laughs> well, especially in the institution that that uh, that Milton Friedman helped really bring to the fore. So I mean, it's I mean, it's I can see I can see cracks in the Hoover Tower happening. It's not a doctrine. <laughs> it's just a long wait of experience. Well, again, experience is experience is very good. But every once in a while, there's a new innovation. The Chinese model is currently tracking to equal us. And perhaps, perhaps everything you just said, and perhaps they'll have other problems and so forth. But I, I'm concerned about making sure that we win, and we have a competitor. And I'd like to, I'd like America to win. If I might add one last point before we move on, John, I think the lesson of the Cold War is that you can't leave this kind of competition entirely to the market. That the Manhattan Project, you could say, was one of the most successful. Uh, exercises in industrial policy in the entire 20th century. If you look at Cold War I, uh, what's very clear is that the federal government played a key role in the research and development that made possible uh, the advances that ultimately the Soviet Union could not match. And my concern, and Eric and I have discussed this over the last few years, is that until we think a little bit more of this as Cold War II, we won't bring the the right game, uh, the right tactics to the table. China is definitely on a Cold War footing. That is why they're investing so much, not only in AI, but also in quantum computing. If we do not recognize the Cold War character of what we're doing, if we think the market is somehow going to deliver what we need, I think we won't have learned the right lessons from the Cold War. Hey, Eric, would you mind, would you mind sharing with us uh, our viewers, the, the skunk works model, because everybody's nostalgic about that, right? And I think uh, you've made the point previously, you know, we just stopped doing it. I mean, so, and, and it did work in the past. Well, Apollo killed it. <laughs> well, look, I think that, that um, I, I want to go back to John's earlier point about regulatory capture. And uh, General, you're, you're familiar with the military procurement and costs and so forth and so on. As a technologist working in our government, everything is 10 times more expensive and takes 10 times longer than it would in the private sector. So we have to come up with a structure which allows the extraordinary brilliance of American business and competitiveness and technologists that doesn't get sort of into this sort of government bureaucracy that's hard to describe. We do have a success model uh, of industrial policy, although you're not allowed to call it that, which is Operation Warp Speed. Remember that that literally billions of dollars went to Pfizer and Moderna um, in, in, in the procurement. Uh, there were many other companies that lost money, right? So there was a real PL there, but the government guaranteed the products whether they worked or not. And of course, the universities benefited from enormous funding and enormous research and did a great job. So we have models that we can study in areas that are crucial to our nation. And this is one of them. Now, if and again, just to be clear, we, we collectively, both in our report and in the book, say AI is a fundamental technology as important as electricity and roads and cars and so forth and so on. It's important that it be built with Western values. I do not want to be sitting around thinking, I'm worried that the Chinese are watching our conversation. I'm worried that the Chinese are altering my speech. So I said something different than I uh, thought I did, et cetera. I just don't want that anxiety here in the West. 
So warp speed was only necessary because the FDA makes it hard to sell vaccines around here. But I think we, we are kind of in agreement here. There's a difference between, this is the, the general, there's a difference between strategic economic competition, who can win the mercantilist game, and military, developing military stuff. And I think we all agree, the only way you develop military stuff is you have a very active, competitive private technology, and then the government is reasonably good at, at helping and procuring the best stuff, as happened in the in the F project. So our chat says, let's move on. <laughs> right. So Eric, a little while ago, you mentioned a, a evil dictator building a social network. Uh, is that your way of saying that you plan to be frolicking in the metaverse with Neil and John and HR? But on, on a more, but on a more serious level here, uh, you've been asked about Facebook and its judgment, and the phrase that you use is proper industrial restraint. What, what do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the tech companies, um, and I don't want to talk about Google because I'm a big shareholder still, uh, the tech companies as a general group are run by a very small set of people who have enormous responsibility well beyond that of their nation. Um, they have a moral responsibility to get things right. When, we were, when I was at Google, we had choices that would go something like this. We would have some algorithmic improvement that would generate more revenue but it would also could be used to generate more quality as we measured it. And so we arbitrarily decided, I decided that we would take half of the improvement to revenue, that's to the shareholders, and half of the improvement to the quality to our end users, which was not revenue in my view. Now, what criteria did I use for 50-50? It was arbitrary, but it was an example of a human decision to say, this is the right trade-off. And we had another rule which is that whenever there was a crisis, um, somebody got hurt or whatever, we would deal with it immediately. And that's the, the, the requirement to run these systems that are human facing, they've gotta be run that way. And they have to have rules that are set out. The problem now is with all the things that have happened, it's pretty likely that there'll be some form of actual regulation of these things because the industry did not do it well enough. Um, most, I'll give you an example, the Russian hacking, that's a solvable problem in the sense that you can observe it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. is, the future, is the future meta? Um, well, if you mean meta in the form of Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, the, company, the company that is now known as meta is not today known for its metaverse products. Uh, there are, not only is there Facebook entering that market, and I'm sure that they'll do well, but there are challengers that are built on some of these new technologies. I mentioned Web3. Um, as an example, which are likely to be built on a different set of economic models and different models of ownership that have a reasonable chance of building a, a metaverse. Metaverse is an idea, not a product today. People are building it. What's ex what, historically what happens in our industry is that when a challenger meets the incumbent, the challenger wins because the incumbent cannot make the change fast enough. And once the, once the challenger is established, they grow very quickly because of network effects. Whether that'll be true in this case will be hard to know. Can I ask a question about that, Eric? You have a fantastic track record of understanding what consumers, not only American consumers, but consumers around the world will, will like and, and will use when it's made available. I was just watching a, an old interview from the 90s uh, in which Letterman makes fun of Bill Gates for arguing that everyone will soon be on the internet. And, and using the internet to follow sports. And the audience is laughing at Gates. That on the internet or on some computer deal, they were going to broadcast a, a baseball game. You could listen to a baseball game on your computer. And I just thought to myself, 
Does radio ring a bell? <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, I, I was asking myself if my reaction to, to Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse is just the same as that Letterman show, because I'm underestimating how appealing virtual reality and augmented reality will be. My instinct is that it's an awful idea and I don't want those goggles and I don't really want an immersive experience. But am I just like the, the 1990s people laughing at Bill Gates? Do you think this kind of all-encompassing virtual reality, augmented reality experience is going to take off? Because that seems like the big question. Um, I do. And I don't know that you'll be laughed at, Neil. But what I will say is that we're just at 1% in this area. We just have the goggles. We just have reasonably realistic worlds. And the way this will play out is through gaming. The generation of young people, especially uh, boys, but also girls that are in these immersive experiences and the computational needs of them indicates enormous investment, enormous revenue, and enormous discovery. The result of this is the following. We collectively are going to have worlds where we can have our avatars, our, they'll be called something else, our digital presences. And my digital presence will be younger, smarter, more athletic, uh, more handsome, what have you, and all the other people and all of you will be in my world in the same role. Would I prefer to be in the real world with you or would I prefer to be in this digital world with my friends in their better versions? Well, it, I may prefer the better world for lots of reasons. And especially imagine if it's where my intellectual force is, it's where my friends are. It's the ultimate expression of Zoom in the sense of I'm in a metaverse where I'm doing very interesting things. It's also possible, by the way, that we'll screw it up and that this world that I go into will have some evil people in it. When we built the internet, which I was part of, it didn't occur to us that we'd have criminals. Um, the networks that I built didn't even have passwords. It didn't occur to me. That's how young and immature and dumb I was. So the fact of the matter is maybe these multiverses will have evil players, or they'll have drama that I don't like, and I'll want to turn it off. The problem with the internet today is you can't turn it off. Um, I used to say 10 years ago, if you don't like the internet, just turn it off. I like the internet, I put up with it, but the average person doesn't make sense, just turn it off. Can't do that anymore. So the internet is now this essential platform, and the debate is whether the multiverse will become an essential platform as well. I'm reminded of Neil Stevenson's novel, Snow Crash, in which the word metaverse first appears. It's a dystopian novel imagining an appalling future in which California is sort of falling apart as a real space and people are spending half their lives in, in a better world. The point being that the more seductive the metaverse becomes, the more reality kind of disintegrates. I, I bumped into Stevenson recently and uh, had a drink with him and was struck by his ongoing pessimism about where this where this leads us. And yet Mark Zuckerberg sells it as, as a utopian vision. I'm, I'm with Stevenson here. Well, you want to decide whether you're, you're trying to max, what are you trying to maximize? And so this is where computer scientists should not be the people making these maximization functions. But I think overall human society is complex and powerful. I am very optimistic that we can use these tools to affect I'm also very optimistic that we will solve these problems. The, my issue is we're not, we're not working to solve them. Uh, and so this is where we are. Uh, we need to answer the question, how do we want social networks to behave? 
We need to answer the question, how do we want AI-enabled war to behave? And we need to understand what the rules should be about children. Um, it's okay, in my view, to have free speech for adult humans, and we can have these debates, and you know, John and I can argue over you know, industrial policy. That's all wonderful. It's not okay with me for five, six, and seven-year-olds to begin to try to manipulate them in ways that are counter to the way we've built humans for so many years. We've got to think that through. I want to follow on the metaverse uh, question because I'm puzzled by it too. But like Neil, I've been wrong about absolutely everything else. Remember in 1990 thinking, why would I want to connect my computer to another computer? I can take the floppy disk home. <laughs> been wrong ever since. But the metaverse, does, as presented so far, uh, it looks like a 2006 version of, of Second Life on steroids, maybe. But it looks like entirely an entertainment, a, a souped up video game. A, a from large to small experience. I, I would think the lesson, you know, TikTok, people want to put pictures of themselves uh, up on the internet. Um, they and, and there's nothing, I don't see anything to do with this other than recreation for uh, young adults sitting in mom's basement playing video games. Uh, you know, Google was fantastic. Uh, you, what Google search has done for my productivity as an economist is just stellar. I never have to go to the library again. <laughs> but I don't. Uh, where is that in in this metaverse vision, or is is it just this is going to be top down entertainment, the world's most gigantic video game? So, so the the problem here is that it's hard to know what the future holds. Yeah. Uh, if we had this conversation 15 years ago about Facebook. I would have said, look, this is a fantastic tool for college students to have a virtual version of a Facebook, which used to be a physical book. Um, people at the time did not understand, first, that, that Facebook would become college plus adults. Second, they didn't understand it would become teenagers. Third, they didn't understand Facebook would purchase Instagram and also WhatsApp. And fourth, they did not understand that the ad model would come to dominate the behavior of Facebook. All of that was foreseeable at the time, but people didn't say it. So I'm betting the following. I'm betting first that there's going to be more humans in the world in the next 100 years. I think that's pretty obvious and well-established. The second is that they're going to be incredibly highly interconnected, and that as a result, there will be enormous numbers of companies and ways in which they interact. You know, the, the joke here is we spent the last 20, 30 years trying to get everyone on the earth interconnected, and now we're upset that we connected them right? That, oh my God, look at the things that they do online. Well, we could have predicted that. It's the any, same things they do at home. <laughs> any historian or any ethnographer or any sociologist could have said, well, you're going to have this, 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 and this. Well, I predict that not only will we have multi metaverses, but we'll have many of them. And furthermore, that there will be grand battles between them because that's what's happened so far. I further predict that with this connectivity re re revolution, you're ultimately going to need to have your own assistant. And the way it's going to work and um, Neil mentioned uh, Snow Crash. There's a book called Seven Eves, which is fantastic science fiction. In one, in its second part, has 5,000 years from now, a device, which is a little sort of dog-like thing that travels with the human. And this dog-like thing, is, it's called a memmi, which watches out what's going on and protects that person from people that they don't really want to talk to, understands their preferences, and helps guide them through the day, right? That's an example. Uh, it's clear to me that even in the next 10 years, we're gonna have assistants that will be, be essentially helping us navigate the digital world because there's so much stuff coming. Um, there's a quote, since you're an economist, John, from 
uh, a famous uh, economist at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon, which goes that the scarcity the scarcity is obvious when you have attention is the scarcity of attention. And that all of this is going to be placed around the value of one's attention. There are many people who believe that we're going to build ownership models where you can own your own identity. You can own your own content. You can sell it. You can give it. You can predict it and so forth. If that occurs, it's a new economic platform that will further propel it. If not, then something else will come along. Eric, we have about five minutes left. So one one last topic for you, a quick one. Uh, having worked with Henry Kissinger, who I believe turns 99 next May, uh, you're of the opinion that the key to a long life to longevity is being something of a workaholic. Um, that would seem true of Dr. Kissinger here at Hoover. George Schultz lived to be 100 years old. He reported to work every day through himself into many intellectual pursuits. The question, Eric, is how is it possible if technology continues to supplant the human workforce, How's it going to be possible to be working into your 70s, 80s, 90s? Um, so first, Dr. Kissinger is, is both a hero of mine and also, I think, a, a model of what we should all be in the sense that he gets up in the morning and he works on the things that he cares about and he's with his family and he does it every day and he stays up very late working very hard listening to classical music. At the age of 98 or 99, that is remarkable. And even with the physical limitations that occur at that age, he's managed to pull it off. Um, that is that is something that we should all aspire to. Um, so the second part of your question was, so so what's the job that is in the greatest supply uh, short supply of actual humans right now? Truck driving. For the last five years, I've listened to story after story about how truck drivers are not going to have their jobs because they're going to be replaced by self-driving trucks. Right. So something's got to give here. One side or the other is not true. A better understanding of this, and John can opine on this as well, is that all technology in the business world makes it more efficient. Efficiency need means a greater expansion of goods, more available prices, more growth and revenue and so forth. Mm-hmm. A consequence of that is more employment. The employment is different. You know, Jobs go away, the elevator operators and so forth and so on. But I think a reasonable expectation is that there will be a very big shortage of people who can do these jobs and that it is our job and certainly Hoover's job, my job to help get people educated for them. But it's certainly true that technology has displaced very, very low skilled jobs done by humans. That's been true for decades. Think about the manufacturing line uh, and so forth. There's all sorts of examples of this, but shockingly, those people, and in particular, their children, get new jobs, which are often at much higher salaries. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, do a quick round. John, Neil, HR, and then we'll sign off. Well, I'll go first. Economic history is overwhelmingly on Eric's side. I remember exactly when I was told that the truck drivers would all be unemployed. It was five years ago, just after I had moved uh, across the country from Harvard to Stanford. And uh, five years have passed and uh, we have a shortage of truck drivers. And this is very much in line with the, the prediction of economic history. Whenever people predict that a new technology will create mass unemployment, very quickly they turn out to be wrong. The other observation is based partly on on my my father's observation as a doctor, 
Retirement is fatal in 100% of cases. And what I've learned from writing Henry Kissinger's biography and, and also uh, working uh, with Eric to try better to understand his world is that you just have to keep on thinking. You have to keep on reading and you have to keep on thinking. And what mostly kills people off is when they stop doing those things. Now, if the metaverse provides the kind of intellectual stimulus uh, that I get from, like Henry, listening to classical music and reading, then we're going to be fine. But if not, if the metaverse provides a kind of mindless entertainment that doesn't promote healthy brain activity, then it'll turn out to be more of a curse uh, than a blessing. Mm -hmm. HR, final thoughts? Hey, Eric, thanks for being with us. One of the things we didn't talk about is AI-enabled infrastructure and then the degree to which you know, strategies are being developed in the critical areas you mentioned. I just wanted to highlight it to, before you have the last word here. You mentioned it in quick succession, artificial intelligence, obviously, fifth-generation communications, robotics, uh, synthetic bio biology, quantum computing, microelectronics, uh, energy, and and, uh, and, and digital currency and, and financial uh, technologies. I, I mean, I think these are areas that we have to compete in. You've highlighted these, I think, in, in an extremely useful way. And, uh, and it's just been great to, great to be with you today. And, and, uh, and, and thanks for the clear thinking that, you, that you've given us uh, in, in each of these areas so we can become more competitive. John? Well, you're exactly right. I, I, I felt bad because I was going to use the truck driver example and you stole my <laughs> best example there. Uh, but uh, the, you know, the invention, for example, of the uh, word processor, which should have made unemployed an entire thing. In the 1970s, there were, you know, huge basketball uh, stadiums full of people typing. Uh, these are tools. In fact, who should worry right now is the radiologist, the middle manager, the, the, the bill processor. That's the kind of thing that will we'll go uh, soon. But they'll find other jobs as our ancestors found other jobs and stopped hoeing things up by hand. Uh, I would just hope it comes quicker. Uh, I'm old enough. I, I went to MIT in the 1970s and everyone was talking about how AI was just around the corner. We were told to use computers who think, not computers that think, because uh, this was going to happen. Uh, and it's it's taken a while. So uh, let us hope it's just a tool. It makes us more productive. Sooner the better. Okay. Eric, any else, anything else you'd like to add? So, so thank you guys. Um, what Hoover does and what Stanford does here is crucial. What we need are the universities, the really, really deep thinkers in all of these fields to come together to address the questions that we pose in the book. What does it mean to be human? What, how do we do AI-enabled war? What does it mean to be a child growing up in this? How do countries interact with each other? How do we deal with misinformation that's generated by evil people? And how do we preserve the values of our democracy? Uh, I care a lot about our country and our democracy, and I know you all do. We need to win at the end of this, um, whether it's China or other players who are competing with us at a new level with an awful lot of money. We need to get our act together. This is part of it. We're not done, and it's going to continue at an extraordinary pace. Thank you guys so much for having me on. 
Eric Schmidt, thank you for joining us. It was thank a pleasure. What a, what a great conversation. Real intelligence, not artificial, but real thoughtfulness. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. But fear not, we'll be back soon with a new conversation. Eric Schmidt's book, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the title is The Age of AI and Our Human Future. Yes, it's available at Amazon as our HR McMaster's Battlegrounds of Fight to Defend the Free World and Neil Ferguson's The Square and the Tower and a whole bunch of other Neil Ferguson books. Buy them all for Christmas. Give the gift of learning, folks. <laughs> On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, John Cochran, the aforementioned Neil Ferguson and H.R. McMaster, our guest today, Eric Schmidt, we wish you all the best. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.